Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with bladder cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Tragpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about Men's Health Month and prostate cancer screening with Dr. Michael Liepman. Dr. Liepman is an assistant professor of urology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. I didn't realize we had a Men's Health Month. Nobody told me about it. <laughs> well, we certainly do. You know, the, the idea behind Men's Health is that there are, um, you know, everyone obviously deserves to be healthy, but there's certain considerations for health for men um, that we believe require some attention. Uh-huh. Dif- different than women. Different than women. So there's certain urologic conditions, urinary health, sexual health, reproductive health, which are clearly specific to men. But men also are less likely to go to the doctor. The more likely to engage in risky behaviors, smoke, drink alcohol. So we think it does require some attention. Gotcha. But as a urologist, I'm guessing that you're not sort of like, I mean, I think for like women, their GYN often are their primary health practitioners during the reproductive years, often. Whether that's good or not, I don't know. Yep. So you you often hear OBGYNs talking about sort of general health. But my guess is, at least unless things have changed, urologists are not the guys we want to go to for the you know, for our influenza vaccinations and stuff like that. You're absolutely right. And so there is a gap. That need is not really being met right now for men. And based on the number of urologists in this country, it's very unlikely that urologists will assume that role. Right. So that's where I think men maybe f- fall between the cracks here, is that if they're not going to primary care doctors, there's no one else really looking after them, advising them on screening, advising them on healthy behavior. Yeah. Well, but your interest primarily is in uh, prostate cancer, if, That's if right. I'm not yeah. mistaken. So um, how, if a guy isn't being seen by a doctor, uh, you know, how is he coming to attention to, how is he coming to people like yours attention unless he's having some terrible symptoms of advanced prostate cancer, which we don't want to happen. And so how does that happen? I mean, I know some guys have like blood in the urine or semen and that'll get somebody's attention, but that would not be a typical presentation for prostate cancer. That's correct. And so that's why the relationship of a patient with a primary care doctor, someone who knows them, cares about them, understands their their desires, their wishes and their preferences is so important. Mm-hmm. So urologists will never be the ones who are primarily screening every male American or deciding who needs to be screened, who doesn't need to be screened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I think better efforts for engagement with primary care, with internal medicine, um, are so critical. But even there, isn't there a lot of controversy about screening for prostate cancer in general? Absolutely. And so, you know, right now, there there's a little bit of a pendulum swing. There was a swing against screening. The U.S. Preventative Service Task Force issued a grade D recommendation saying, do not screen any man under any conditions. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that was in 2012. Right now, they're reevaluating that statement, and it's likely to change in the next few months. Um, but we think screening, if it should happen, should occur in a shared decision-making fashion. Men should understand what the risks of screening are, what the benefits are, uh, and what the options are. Well, can you walk us through why this is even controversial? I mean, you know, we've heard for years about mammography, and although there's been some 
you know, controversies about, you know, what age to start and how often. I, I don't think that people are saying don't get mammography. And, you know, for a long time, you know, the PSA, I think that's the test, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, seemed to be like a blood test. And why wouldn't you get it? Uh, why wouldn't you get it? It's a great question. We, you know, so on the surface, it sounds very simple. Finding cancers earlier are better. That's, that's what everyone says. That's the premise. But we found what we realized is that if you look hard enough, you're going to find prostate cancer in many, many men. A lot of the cancers we find by screening are not actually lethal. These are the cancers that someone is more likely to die with than from. And if you find cancers in all in in men, we're likely to treat them, and treatment has consequences. So we're we're trying to be very very selective in who we identify, and only offer treatment selectively to men who are most likely to derive a benefit. So you're saying that the problem is that urologists can't control themselves from sending people to surgery. Is that what it is? I think that's a big part of it. Uro- surgery. I was teasing, yeah, really. But I, I but I say it in earnest that yeah. that for for decades we had a problem of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. It was mm. clearly well intentioned. We were trying to save people's life from dying from prostate cancer, it's a, uh, the, one of the leading ca- cancer killers in men. We're trying to combat that. But treating men with non-aggressive cancers is not going to extend their life. So my interest really is, is finding ways to refine that prediction. Tell people you don't need to be treated and watch you carefully versus offer a high level of, of confidence and good treatment to those who do have a cancer that needs to be addressed. Okay. So I'm a pretty healthy 60-year-old guy. And, um, well, my brother recently has had prostate cancer, but until recently, uh, we had no prostate cancer in the family. Yeah, so so what do I do? I see my internist every year. I'm pretty good about that. Yeah. And he always asks me, do I want my PSA done? And I've gone through years uh, where I've said, well, I'm trying to live what I teach. And so there was time when I when I wasn't getting it screened. Hmm. Um, and now I'm saying yes, but I don't, you know. It's, How do you approach me? Yeah, so it's very. I'm not looking for personal advice. Sure, but it's very interesting that we've we've shifted a lot of this responsibility onto the patient, which doesn't seem fair. Which I I agree completely, and it's been under the the guise of or the the name we call it a shared decision making. Right. That that the patient and the doctor are going to sit down together and hash out a plan. The doctor will inform the patient what the risks and benefits are, and the patient will ultimately make a decision. So let's walk us through walk us through what I just sure. you know the scenario. Yeah. With me, yeah. For so, example, yeah. So, so I would tell you that if we if we test your PSA, uh, your if it shows that it's elevated, it's possible that I'll offer you a biopsy. A biopsy is an invasive procedure. There's a risk of getting an infection from it. There's a risk of it being uncomfortable. You could experience bleeding, and we could diagnose a, a prostate cancer which is aggressive, but we could also diagnose a cancer that's not aggressive, and then you have that shackled to you for the rest of your life. Yeah, but the the risks of some inconvenience and a little pain for a couple of days against the risk of not knowing there was an aggressive prostate cancer to me, that seems like a no-brainer to me. I don't know. Yeah, and that's the position. I mean, and I, I would agree with that sentiment. I think that screening is warranted, but I wonder but I, I do have some concerns about shifting it entirely onto the patient. Now, Steve, you're you're a you're a physician. I think you understand the complexity of it. But if I'm just someone who this is the first conversation I've ever had or even heard about it, that's a big burden to shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that streamlining this is going to be very, very important in the next few years. So how, how do you advise patients? I mean, uh, who are just kind of coming to you because they think maybe they should be screened or, you know, or your internal medicine colleagues who are, you know, really kind of confused about what to do with their patients. What, what do you recommend? So I always fall back on the data, right? And unfortunately, we have very 
high-level, level one evidence, randomized trials of population-based trials of screening. The controversy really started because there were two that happened at the same time. One was performed in the United States where men were randomized, where they said half, half the group could get screened, half the group would not get screened regularly. Flipping a coin, basically. Basically, you flip a coin. And the, we're going to look at 10 years later and say, well, did, that, did the group who get screened, are they less likely to die from prostate cancer or have a bad outcome? The same trial happened essentially in Europe. So the U.S. trial came out first, and it showed no difference in the likelihood of being dead from prostate cancer at the end of the study. And this was very, very controversial, and it pretty much closed the door on the screening question temporarily. Mm -hmm. But that was a very flawed study. Actually, upwards of 90% of the, of the group who were randomized or being told do not screen were actually getting screened anyway. Because in the United States, you can't stop someone from getting screened. Sure. Their primary doctors were ordering it anyway. So it is not really a true screening trial. The Europeans were a little bit ahead of us here. And that really was a good screening trial. They really, there was a big difference between the group who was randomized to not get screened and the group who was randomized to get screened. In terms of the incidence of cancer or in terms of overall survival or what? Both, right. So, so if you screen, you're going to find cancers. But there was, a, there was a significant difference in the risk of death from prostate cancer in I the see. group who got screened. And so, so I fall back on that. And you also have to be very careful to see, are we screening the right people? The group that derives benefit, the patients were enrolled from the age of 50 to 69. Mm -hmm. So this is a younger group with a good life expectancy. In the United States, unfortunately, still many men who are above the age of 80 or who have multiple medical problems who are probably not going to derive benefit from screening nonetheless still get tested. And I worry about that because if you find a cancer in someone who has many medical problems and you treat them, you're only going to make their life worse. Okay. So, you know, I project frighteningly uh, 10 years from now when I'm a hopefully healthy 70-year-old. And I'm thinking if I'm a healthy, active 70-year-old, why wouldn't I still get screened? And I, I agree. And so we fortunately we have some, we have guidance on that. So according to, the, you know, the guideline bodies, the American Urologic Association, the NCCN, if you do have a good life expectancy, if you're, if you're in good shape at 70, I see no reason to stop screening. Mm-hmm. So it's really individualized to the patient. Absolutely, it is. And are there special populations at increased risk who definitely should be screened or should even start screening earlier? Yeah, so, so, there are, so people with a first-degree family history. So well, what does have, that mean? So that means a father or brother, a close family member who has prostate cancer, or many people in your family who have prostate cancer, we, we believe that you should consider getting screened earlier. So as opposed to 50 or 55, start at 45. Mm. Um, also, African-American men are at a much higher risk for developing cancer and developing lethal prostate cancer. Hmm. So we believe that African-American men should start considering screening earlier, around age 45. Hmm. Do we understand why there is this difference in uh, people of color? It's a great question. We don't really have a great answer. Um, we think that, that these differences are not just explainable by different screening pra practices. There might be something real that's going on there. And uh, I suppose that could be genetic or it could be environmental, food-based. Yeah, no? we, we think it's probably a combination of all of those. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, so not only are African-American men more likely to develop aggressive cancer, they're less, li li they're less likely to get treated for it, right. which is concerning. And that's one of the disparities of cancer care in the United States that we're trying to, to study and address. Hmm. And, and I suppose uh, in, in New Haven and the... Uh, 
the Connecticut uh, urban areas, um, this would be a, a place where one could really study disparities. I, I would think that this would be a good environment for Absolutely. that. Absolutely. The New Haven area is very representative of the, Uni- of the United States. We're fortunate to live in a very diverse community um, where we can where you know it's not homogenous. We're lucky to, to practice in an academic setting, which does resemble the United States. Some academic environments are very homogenous, mm-hmm. um, but this really represents the melting pot of the United States. All right. And I also uh, one thing that I've learned recently, um, as we've gone through our um, every five year cancer center review by the National Institutes of Health, um, is that uh, access to medical care in this area is much more universal um, than in uh, than in many other areas that although uh, you know we, we have a very significant uh, racial heterogeneity a very significant uh, you know racial minority and ethnic minority population the, the access to care for Latinos and uh, and uh, African Americans is really much better than in many parts of the country I, I'm very proud of that I think that's true I've been um Delighted to see how engaged the community is, and um, how the the barriers between the university and the community are very were, are, are very minimal. Yeah, it's different than than other places that I've worked. It really is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. So okay, so um, so let's go back to my uh, hypothetical. We hope. Sure. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I've had my PSA done because I just decided I should or would or whatever, and and it's uh, it's elevated, not not crazy high, but elevated. So now what happens? So we know that a million biopsies are done every year in the United States right now for people who are suspected to have prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to cone that number down right, because we're because not everyone who has an elevated PSA is going to have prostate cancer. So we're trying to apply new tools like MRI, like genetic genomic testing prior to conducting a biopsy. Wow. Well, that's uh, that's going to be a wonderful topic for our second half because you've got my attention. Okay. And, and if it's my attention, I hope that our listeners are paying attention as well. But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about men's health and particularly prostate cancer screening with Dr. Michael Liepman. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Michael Liepman. Uh, Michael, before the break, uh, you kind of teased us with this uh, uh, kind of high-tech-sounding thing about um, trying to stratify or using new techniques to tease out uh, those 
worrisome PSAs, which are likely to be cancer-related uh, from those which are not. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So as I was mentioning before, many men who get their PSA tested are going to have an elevated PSA. It's going to be abnormal maybe because they have cancer, maybe because they have inflammation in their prostate, and maybe some men just make more PSA than others for genetic reasons. So to tease that out a little bit, you know, there's been an effort for many, many years to, to refine who gets a biopsy, to, to, to offer biopsy to those who we really think might have prostate cancer, and maybe carefully watch those who are at a lower risk for it. Primarily, that's happening on two fronts. One is offering an MRI of the prostate. That's mm -hmm. an MRI. It's this magnet. You know, it's the test people go for. Like a CAT scan, but fancy with it's the like magnets. A, it makes a lot of noise. Yeah, it makes a lot of noise. Um, the nice thing is it offers, it's, there's no radiation in it. Okay. okay. We get a very high quality picture of the prostate, and it's useful to identify lesions or areas in there which are suspicious for cancer. And, in the, and if they're not there, we can feel a little bit better about it. Hmm. If there are areas that are suspicious there, we can perform a targeted biopsy. So when we do biopsy it, we make sure to, to hit it directly. And we have technology here that's, all, you know, that's growing all over the, the country and all over the world to essentially be like a GPS for your car. Wow. So as opposed to saying, I'm going to hover around this vicinity, it tells you exactly where to put the target. Is it done by a robot or? No, it's done by, you know, there's there's a, a machine that your urologist will use and, and the Technology will tell you just where to put that needle. That's incredible. Yeah, and so it's really improved our detection rate. So if we tell someone you have a clean biopsy or if you – we can be a lot more certain of that than we used to be. Okay. We also have at our disposal now better markers, kind of cousin molecules of PSA, which are better at telling people you're at risk for having prostate cancer or you're not at risk for having prostate cancer. So our reflex currently is, is if you have an elevated PSA to offer some additional testing – a simple blood test to better cone in on that individualized risk. Okay. And how helpful is that? It, it really is helpful. So, you know, about, so if you have an elevated PSA, there's maybe a 60% chance that you have prostate cancer somewhere around there. This improves that confidence. It improves that, that area under the curve, that, that prediction of the likelihood of having prostate cancer. So if those tests are negative, can you sort of rest assured? So in, in some situation, it requires some interpretation. It's not a simple yes or no. Um, it depends on the patient's overall risk, their age, their preferences. But we're, I think, slowly stepping in that direction of saying, if your PSA is elevated but all the other tests look good, maybe we could start holding back on a biopsy. I still think in today's day and age, we're still being cautious here. Mm -hmm. um, but in select patients, we are foregoing immediate biopsy if the other tests are Encouraging. Am I wrong in thinking that prostate cancer in general uh, tends to be slow growing so that a watchful waiting and looking at the trend of PSA uh, in such cases may not be warranted? So, so you're correct that, that we generally think prostate cancer is a slow growing disease for some, but the aggressive ones we think can move quickly. And so uh -huh. that, that is the reason for the uncertainty. That's what makes it so challenging is that sh a one-size-fits-all approach is not going to work for prostate cancer. I see. And, uh, and uh, none of these adjunctive tests tell you the likelihood of it being one of these more aggressive things which you want to make an earlier diagnosis? They actually do. They actually do. So if, so if, if the MRI looks very abnormal, that's that, a problem. That's a problem. If the if the biomarkers are very abnormal, we also think that's suspicious. So we're, we're trying to build a, a model, a pr you know, a prediction tool that helps people make these decisions earlier. Um, and not only 
before diagnosis, but if someone has a biopsy showing prostate cancer and it looks low grade, we want to improve the confidence with which we tell them, you don't need to get treated right now. You don't need to have surgery. You don't need to have radiation. Well, how do men respond to that? Because I, I think it's got to be very challenging to know that you've got a low-grade prostate cancer, but it's cancer, right? It's got that C word, yep. and you're not going to do anything about it. I mean, that that just doesn't sit well, I would think, with a lot of people. It can be very tough to begin with, and I agree. Those, those are some of the hardest conversations to, to tell someone, especially maybe someone who's, who's lost a family member to cancer, mm-hmm. to say, we've identified a cancer in your body, and we're not going to do anything about it. But I think what gives people comfort and solace is the strength of the experience and the strength of the evidence supporting the safety of watching it carefully. Mm-hmm. Not only, and we don't stop just at the biopsy. So those tools we talked about, MRI, biomarkers, and genomic testing, which basically testing the genes in someone's cancer, also improve our confidence that this is really a not aggressive entity. We don't stop there. We also monitor very carefully. So we don't just say, you have a low-grade cancer, see me in 10 years. Mm -hmm. We really keep you under our thumb and say, we're going to check your PSA at three to six-month intervals. We're going to do repeat MRI and, unfortunately, repeat biopsy, but to make sure we've fully characterized it and we don't let anything slip between the cracks. I see. So um, it requires a certain amount of... uh being tied to the system and maybe some intermittent anxiety on the three-month or six-month visit, but then maybe hopefully you can sort of live your life uh, in the interim periods without a lot of anxiety? Correct. Yeah. So, so, you know, and so the whole purpose of doing this is to improve people's quality of life. Mm -hmm. The The rationale behind doing it is that treatment, even in the best hands, comes occasionally, you know, can, can have a cost. For men, that can be urinary and sexual function. Right. So if you're so for a man who has, you know, who whose sexual life and whose urinary function is good, they stand to be harmed by immediate treatment. Now, clearly, if you have an aggressive cancer, we take steps to minimize those treatment, minimize those complications, and and we do offer treatment, and that's the I think that's a a sound approach. But if you have a cancer that is a very 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 low risk to your life, um, we have to be very we have to be sure that we preserve. The quality of your life, mm-hmm. but but if people um, need to have treatment or want to have treatment and they're very concerned about their sexual functioning, can't they just opt for something like radiation instead of surgery? Radiation and surgery, you know, they, they do pose similar risks of deterioration of sexual function. Um, so if you look at about three years after treatment, those lines converge. Oh, I see. And so, unfortunately, there's no way to come off completely without without effect. Um, the quality of surgery has improved dramatically, and, and with the with the integration of robotic techniques, radiation has improved dramatically as well. But I'm sort of a believer in the in the approach: if it ain't broken, don't fix it, right? And so for many men, if if it's a truly low grade cancer, you'd rather just watch it. We'd rather watch it, and you can't beat that. Um, nonetheless, the quality of treatment has really improved, and so I think the risk of having a major urinary sex or sexual problem has really gone down. Um, so. That's encouraging as well. Let me put you on that just a tiny bit. So uh, let's say it's a lower grade cancer and you really believe that the right thing to do is to watch it. But you've got a a person who says, look, I I can't live with that anxiety. I don't want to have this cancer. Uh, Are you willing to perform a prostatectomy in such a patient or are you going to say, well, look, I you know, my medical conscience doesn't allow me to do that. I can refer you to other people who might feel differently. How do you, how do you handle that? I think, I think personally I would really try to, you know, I believe it or not, you know, if we build a relationship with, with, my, with a patient and really, and I think if they trust me and I trust them and we have a, a good relationship, 
surprise, you know, believe it or not, those are not very common events. Is that right? But certainly if someone said, listen, I can't sleep at night about this. Uh, this is this is really harming me. Then, of course, I think, um, you know, to, to alleviate that patient's anxiety and, and to let them get on with their life and live a live their life to the fullest, then, then I would feel comfortable offering treatment. I see. So uh, let's go a little past that in terms of uh, men's health. And so your patient has uh, had hopefully curative surgery or radiation, uh, as, it, as it may be, um, and is unfortunately suffering from uh, some degree of uh, sexual impotence or, you know, unacceptable incontinence, you know, What's your relationship to them? How does that play out? How can you help them? Mm-hmm. Or is it just kind of a pat in the back and, gee, I'm sorry, but at least you don't have cancer? No, we can – in, in almost every situation, we can address those issues. And so I think urologists and, and myself, I like to stay very, very involved with patients afterwards. Um, and so, so, we, so the sexual function can be addressed in many ways. There are medications like Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, which we know about. There are also – other interventions, injection therapy, which can really help men achieve erections, people who've been treated for prostate cancer and people who have not been treated for prostate cancer. So there's a lot we can do for erectile function. So prostate cancer is not the end of sexual function for males at all. Which I'm and, sure makes people feel much better yeah, because for some reason I hear that sex is important to men. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. But it's a common mis- misconception, I think, that if I get treated for prostate cancer, that's it for sex for me. Right. And it's really not the case. For the, it's a small minority of men who, who suffer from urinary incontinence afterwards. It's a very, very low number. But there are things we can do to address it. There are corrective procedures we can do, um, things like urinary slings or artificial sphincters, which can help restore continence for men if you're in that unlucky small minority. That's a, Those are surgical procedures? Sur- yeah, they are surgical procedures, yep. Okay, so... Again, I, I think a lot of guys hearing that, well, you know, if you have erectile dysfunction, we have a medication that you can inject into your penis before sex. That doesn't sound like really very romantic. I don't know. Correct. I mean, you know, so it really depends on the situation. So if the rationale for treatment and the benefit for treatment is compelling, then that's sort of a, a necessary step that we're willing to take. Believe it or not, it sounds like a big hurdle, and most men look at me just the way you're looking at me right now. Like, like I must be crazy. <laughs> Which nobody can see, but, but I'm kind of glad because it would be embarrassing, yeah. right? But so it you, sounds horrifying. You get, that, you get that glare. It sounds horrifying, but like anything else, it becomes part of the routine. It becomes part of the ritual. And after a few months of doing it, and, and if men can achieve a good erection, then, they, then it be, you know, becomes second nature. Got it. And I, I suppose that's probably, I would think, much easier in, a, in an established and longitudinal primary relationship than in somebody who's, you know, dating or something where it's like, excuse me, I gotta... Correct. Correct. And so, I mean, that speaks to the nature of intimacy as well. Sure. Um, Right. If you have a trusting relationship, then you do it, you know, what needs to be done for intimacy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this is really encouraging. And and the outcome for these patients long-term in terms of their cancer? They're very, very good at all. It really depends on the the aggressiveness of the cancer, um, intermediate risk cancers that are kind of in the fence between non-aggressive and very aggressive, we think we have a very good handle on it, as well as high-grade cancers. And so we can watch people very carefully, offer additional treatments if necessary. Um, and I think that's really part resulted in, in prostate cancer being one of those cancers which has a very good cure rate, cure with a capital C, not just mm-hmm. control rate. Um, Across the disease spectrum, unfortunately, some men still do show up on the doorstep and they have aggressive cancer, which is spread beyond the prostate. Mm-hmm. 
and could be in their bones and their lymph nodes. And, and that's, a, that's a difficult situation, but we have really made tremendous strides in offering very durable treatments to those patients. Right. And then they've got to see my colleagues in medical oncology. Correct. Right. Correct. Um, and are these people who've been treated successfully at risk for developing subsequent prostate cancers, or is that not something you worry about? So if they've been treated, you know, we, we think they're at risk for that cancer coming back, uh-huh. right? So it's not maybe a second, not a secondary cancer. We think it's the primary cancer that has maybe been hiding out somewhere. Gotcha. And so we keep, we watch people very carefully. After treatment, we, that PSA test, which is so tricky and, and a thorn in everyone's side beforehand, actually becomes very valuable. It becomes clear. If your prostate's removed, your PSA should be zero. Mm. So it's very easy for us to track elevations in it. So if your prostate, if your PSA goes down to zero, but then climbs back up and it hits... 0.2, 0.4, we begin to get concerned and say, this thing might be, you know, this, the fire's not totally out. Gotcha. So we've got a couple minutes left, and I, I wonder what you think about testosterone screening. We see all these guys, and I see a lot of patients, and they want their testosterone screened, and um, and I don't know, it seems like a big industry. It's a hot, it's really the hot topic. We see so many patients who've heard about it from other people, um, and they, they want it, um, but if for men who genuinely do have a testosterone deficiency, a low testosterone and the symptoms of low testosterone, lethargy, feeling feeling tired, low libido, um, and if if it, if they also do have a genuinely low testosterone, they can really make a dramatic improvement in the quality of their life. Um, there is a lot of testosterone supplementation which appears to happen kind of outside of that. People trying to reach super therapeutic or super physiologic levels. Or just feel better, right? Or just feel better, right? Because if a little testosterone is good, more is better. That's the, the inclination. Um, so that's part of, I think, the men's health initiative is to, to educate men about testosterone health. Um, for example, young men might not know that if you take testosterone to get go to the gym and get big muscles – you're probably going to be infertile. And you're going to get small testicles. And you're going to get small testicles. Yeah. People don't know that. I mean, I'm amazed at how that, that information doesn't trickle down. They might have complex regimens of how they're going to take it and what they're going to do, but the fact that it's probably going to shut down sperm production, at least while you're on it, maybe longer, um, is something that's really important for urologists, primary care doctors uh, to educate. Dr. Michael Liepman is an assistant professor of urology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.